If you have a Bible, take it and turn to Luke chapter 3. The book of Luke, third book in the New Testament, chapter 3. I don't do much um, woodworking. In fact, if you ask my, my daughter, there's a shelf that we stained, and I'm supposed to put some polyurethane on it, and it's, I don't know how long it's been, maybe a year. It's been a long time. And uh, some of that is I just don't really know what I'm doing. But my, my grandfather does, and, and what I've seen with, with wood, some, wood is beautiful in and of itself, right? I mean, we don't have to add much to it. Sometimes you put a coat of paint on a piece of wood, and you, and you ruin it because it's already beautiful. And so some of these products, something like a polyurethane, what it's, what it's meant to do is just to bring out the beauty that's, that's in the wood. Just this thin layer shows forth all the, the beauty that's there. And I feel like that's what I want to try to do this morning with this, with this passage. That I found myself thinking a lot, obviously, this week about the baptism of Jesus. And I thought, I've never really thought deeply about what does the baptism of Jesus really mean. We've all thought deeply about the cross. We, we're going to think very deeply soon about the resurrection. So many different aspects of Jesus' life. What about the baptism? What, what was the purpose of this? Why is this significant? Why is it in 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 the three first Gospels, and, and at least the descent of the Holy Spirit is mentioned by John, it's it's there every time, and it's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It seems pretty significant. So as we think about this, as I just want to be that polyurethane, if you will, to bring out the beauty that's here, that we would just see what, what is here. Uh, and not only that, but that we would see the person of Jesus Christ. That there is practical wisdom and application that we're going to take note of throughout this, but more than anything, I want us to see this wonderful picture of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You've probably noticed as we've walked through these first three chapters of Luke that there's been this interplay between Jesus and his cousin John. Uh, and so many of the events of their life are similar. And yet at the same time, Jesus continues to rise to the top. Jesus continues to be seen as, as supreme. John's uh, conception and birth were amazing, but Jesus' conception and birth, wow, that was beyond belief. John's ministry was great. His teaching are awesome. But now we're going to see throughout the book of Luke, Jesus far surpasses who John was. And, and it seems here at the end of this of this chapter, in chapter 3, that, that Luke kind of says, here's the final thing. Let me just show you how much greater Jesus is than John, because he's not just a human teacher. He's not just an Old Testament prophet. He is, in fact, the very Son of God. And Luke announces here with one more loud statement what he has been hammering on and what he will continue to hammer on. It's this, that Jesus is the God-man who has come to save the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is the theme of Luke, and he is the God-man who has come to save the world. Now, just simply thinking about the person of Jesus, that just sounds, well, that's just theological or that's, that's too heady. Remember, who is it that changes us? Jesus changes us. We don't change our, ourselves. Jesus is the one who saves us, and the more that we know who he is, the more that we are changed into his likeness. As we behold him, we become more like him. So this morning, I just want us to step back and behold who Jesus is and be changed by him. We're going to read verses 21 through 38. A large chunk of that is going to be a bunch of names, and so I'll do my best to get through those. And then as we look at this passage, we're just going to try to answer the question, why was Jesus baptized, and, and hopefully see the glory of who he is. So uh, verses 21 and 22, I'll get through fine. Bear with me on 23 to 38. It says in God's word, Now when all the people were baptized... 
And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Matha, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Rehesa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So again, we're answering this question, why was Jesus baptized? And that genealogy is going to tie in, I, I promise. We won't cover every name, um, but uh, we'll cover the, we'll, we'll hit the highlights. Uh, why was Jesus baptized? Let me just give you a reason right off the bat, and we'll just start discussing these. I've got four, maybe five, depending on how you count. Um, why was Jesus baptized? The first reason is to identify with all people. To identify with all people. The first part here, verse 21, seems to both separate Jesus from the crowd, and at the same time, it lumps him in with the crowd. You might think about this large group, if you want to just imagine in your mind's eye, this large group of people who are here, gathered around the Jordan River to be baptized. They had come out from all different sorts of walks of life, and they had come down to the Jordan to hear John and to be baptized. They'd come uh, to confess their sins, to be baptized as as a sign that they desired to, remember what repentance is, they desired to turn away from their old way of life and to turn to God. And if you imagine this crowd, you're looking out in this crowd that's around the Jordan River, you're scanning and you're seeing all the faces, and in amongst all of the people is Jesus. And again, as we've said before, there wasn't a halo, he wasn't always wearing white, but Jesus was was there. Isaiah 53, in fact, tells us that there was nothing unique, there was nothing special that we would identify him as the Son of God. But he's there. He's, he's in the midst of the crowd. He's, he's simply another member of the mass of humanity that is out there listening to John. Of course, he knows who he is at this point. 
But as Hebrews 2.17 says, he becomes like his brothers in every respect. Or another way we could say it is that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is there with the sinners. He enters into the human experience as we all face it, and he identifies with us with the purpose of coming to deliver us, with the purpose of becoming this great high priest who can identify, who can be touched with our feelings and infirmities because he has walked in and among us, and he knows what that is like. Think about the, the CEO of a company or the, the president of a company, maybe, maybe your company where you work. Think about that person kind of coming down out of, maybe they're in a, you know, in, they, they own this giant company, so they're in New York City in some, you know, the 90th floor of a large high-rise, and they decide, well, I'm going to come out and I'm going to work. Uh, I'm going to work this person's job. And they come and they work alongside you. They get their hands dirty right there with you, and they, they, they gain an appreciation for this is how my employees work. This is how, what makes the company run. They, they understand. They identify with you. And Jesus does that in a way that is far beyond what any CEO or president would do. He stands there in what I imagine is this long line waiting to be baptized by John. Everyone had come out. There's only one guy baptizing people. I imagine that they formed a line, or maybe they just kind of crowded in on him. But Jesus has come, and he's become human, and he's identifying with the experience of the men and the women that he had come to save. And because he's there, he, he, he knows who he is, and yet he is, again, identifying with people. There's even an indication we might say that it looks like Jesus was at the end of the line, that that Jesus purposely had, had placed himself at the end. If you read through that, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Now I don't know, I think it may be, it could be just that he was part of the crowd that was baptized, or it could be that as this line forms and Jesus is at the end of the line, someone comes to be baptized and he says, Oh, why don't you go ahead of me? And he just continues to step to the back of the of the line, which would seem to make sense, because not only was Jesus humbled as a human, but he was humbled as a servant. He became a servant. What marked Jesus' ministry was the fact that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. I wonder if there's not something we can learn here as we think about Jesus identifying with people, that, that we should be encouraged that the lives that we seek to live are, are not ones that we seek to, to be separated from everyone, that we seek to be separated from the common experience of everyday people, that we, though we are Christians, though we recognize who we are, that we are sons of the King, that we are a, a body of believers, that we should seek, in fact, to rub shoulders with everyday people, that we should not despise that, that we should not look at the fact that, oh, we have to go into the world as a as a bad thing, Jesus did not despise being there with the crowds, but rather he saw it as a divine opportunity to identify with them and to shine his light amongst them. Should not we do the same thing? Our goal as Christians shouldn't be to kind of take a deep breath, plug our nose as we go into the world so that we don't have to deal with all of it, and then we come back here to our little, as they call it, the holy huddle, right, where we're here in this nice, beautiful place where we're all clean and oh, we're all Christians and so we're happy. No. That we are to be out, we are to identify, just as Jesus was was out and he was with the people. We're to live in such a way that we are above reproach, but we should also live in such a way that we could be accused, as Jesus was, of being the friend of sinners. Just think, if someone wanted to accuse you of being the friend of sinners, would they have any evidence 
to accuse you of that? Or have we become so cloistered into our into our groups that, that we don't know anyone that, that's that's outside of our circles? So I would encourage you, if you work in a, in a secular workplace, if you work, as we might call it, in the world, to not despise that, but to say that I, I have this opportunity to identify with people, to shine the light of Christ into that experience. And for some people who maybe are pastors like me, <laughs> or maybe you just like to rub shoulders with those that are like you, that we should be convicted to say, you know, it's not a bad thing to, to identify with people, to be in the world, to be accused of being a friend of sinners. If we are walking in holiness, but seeking to shine the light of Christ. So Jesus in his baptism identifies with the people. He identifies with us. He identifies with all humanity. Places himself amongst the crowds, and he's found rubbing shoulders with every manner of humanity. Of course, I think that the real question we have to ask here is, is why is Jesus even waiting to be baptized? I mean, he could have identified with people in, in different ways. He could have been there in, as a part of a crowd. But, but why, even if he's at the back of the line, why is he even in the line in the first place? Because what is John's baptism about? Do you remember what John's baptism was for? It's a baptism for repentance. And what do you repent from? You repent from, from sins. And Scripture all throughout makes it very clear that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, that he was not born with a sin nature, nor did he ever morally fail in any way. So what's he doing waiting to be baptized? I mean, this is the one, imagine imagine Jesus as a child, or now as a man, he he was free from sin. He, he never became sinfully angry. He never gossiped, he never talked behind someone's back. He never was filled with pride, or lust, or greed, or envy, or laziness. He never was frustrated with his morning commute. He never spent too much time on the Internet. Uh, he never ate more than he should have. He never lied to his parents. I mean, he was perfect. So if John's baptism is a baptism for repentance, whereby we turn from sin and turn to God, and Jesus is sinless, then why in the world is he being baptized? In fact, this is the question that John asks him, because Jesus comes, and in Matthew's account, in chapter 3, Jesus comes to be baptized, and John says, Jesus... Why am I baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. Because John understood who Jesus was. He says, this is the Messiah. I don't need to baptize him. But not only is he, John knows too. John is, is Jesus' cousin. He's been there. He, and, and if anyone's going to attest to the fact that whether or not you've sinned, it's someone who is part of your family. And John, who's even his cousin, says, Jesus, I, I don't need to be, I, I need to be baptized by you, not you, not me baptizing you. And what Jesus says gives us another hint. As to why he came, Matthew 3.15 says, Jesus responds to John, he says, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? First, to identify with all people, but secondly, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is later going to say, as he teaches, that he didn't come to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it. And already in Luke, haven't we seen this? That Jesus, through the obedience of his parents, is keeping the law. He was circumcised the eighth day as the law stipulated. He was dedicated to the law, or dedicated to the Lord as the law stipulated. And, and then we saw that Jesus in the temple at 12 years old knows he is God, knows his identity, but what does he do? He willfully goes home and submits to his parents and does not break the fourth commandment. He honors his father and mother. 
Jesus is, is perfect. He fulfills the law. And here in his baptism, he identifies the, with the people, but in this specific way, namely by fulfilling the law on their behalf, on our behalf, by humbling himself in that way. R.C. Sproul comments on this. He says, as the Messiah, as the sin bearer, it was incumbent upon him to fulfill the law of God in every detail. As sin bearer, he had to enter into his people's indebtedness before God. He had to become one with them, entering into the sin of his people as the Lamb of God. So he not only identifies with all people, with us, but he fulfills the law for his children. He becomes our substitute law keeper. The CEO who comes out of the office and works alongside you for a week. Okay, he works for, the, or maybe for just a day. He works and, and identifies and says, I understand what you're going through. But then he goes back to his office. And maybe he's got a better idea of, of what the everyday people are like as they work this job. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't substitute himself. He doesn't take over your job. He doesn't look at you and say, this is your job and you're not doing it well, so I'm going to do it for you. Jesus doesn't come down and say, wow, you're in this really terrible predicament. God has required you to keep the whole law to be completely righteous, but you were born in sin and you continue to sin. And so now you're under God's wrath. And I recognize that. I identify with it. I sympathize with you. And now I'm going back to heaven. That's not what he does. Rather, what he does is he says, here's this job you can't do. Here's what God requires. You're supposed to keep the whole law, and you have failed. So you know what? I'm going to keep it for you. I'm going to do what you cannot do, and I will fulfill all righteousness on your behalf. Now, John's baptism wasn't written in the law. It's not something that was required in that same sense of the, as the Mosaic law. But here it's obviously ordained by God. This John is a prophet sent by God, and so Jesus follows this because this is, this is obviously from God. And so Jesus is baptized as part of his fulfilling of all righteousness. Now think about this. The saving work that Christ does, it's, it's centered on the cross. I mean, the cross is the symbol of our faith, and that is right, because the, the saving work of Jesus is centered on the cross, but it's not limited to it. Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus lived for you. And I'm not talking about resurrection life. I'm talking even before he died, that, that he lived for us. He does perfectly what, what we cannot even think about trying to do. For us, he, he comes and, and he fulfills the law. The law for us, as Paul will say later, is like a, it's like a spotlight. It shines on us, and what does it do? It just reveals sin. And the closer we get to the light, Jesus says in John 3, the more sin is revealed. And so the law is not something we can fulfill. Rather, it's something that, that reveals sin in us. But when the law shines on Jesus, all it does is highlight his purity. It highlights the fact that he is perfect. And so the spotlight shines on Jesus looking for a spot, but all it does is realize that he's the spotless Lamb of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? This is wonderful news for us. This is not something that's, that's heady because, because God's holiness is expressed in the law. He requires this pure and spotless life that we cannot live. But Jesus comes and he fulfills it. And Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not to everyone who keeps the law, but to everyone who believes. This is in part, I think, where that list of names ties in. <laughs> 
What, what makes the genealogy of Luke different from the genealogy that's in Matthew is in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus through Abraham and, and through David. He ends at Abraham. He goes backwards through. He hits David, and David is what he's highlighting throughout. He's the son of David, but he also gets to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of this covenant. So, so Matthew, who's writing to a very Jewish audience, says he is the fulfillment of all of these covenants. He's the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the covenant made to David. This is the Jewish Messiah. But again, what is Luke's emphasis? That Jesus is the Savior of the world. So where does Luke go back to? He goes back to Adam. He goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity. And he says that all people, not simply the Jewish people, may find salvation in Jesus. That all people are, we are all sons and daughters of Abraham of, of Adam, we're all sons and daughters of, of Adam, and Jesus has come, as the song says, to bleed for Adam's helpless race. So that's part of it, this universality of the gospel. But even tied here is that there's this indication that Jesus has come to do what Adam could not. It's those last two phrases there. He says, this is the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is called the second Adam. By, by, in Romans 5 by Paul, he is, he's the son of God who comes but doesn't fail like Adam did. Adam was supposed to keep the law, but Adam didn't. Adam fails. So Jesus comes, and what does he do? Does he fail? No, he's the son of God. He's the second Adam who does not fail but fulfills all righteousness. And Romans 5.18 and 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is beautiful. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Maybe you've forgotten that this week. That as you were singing nothing but the blood where it says, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That you thought, you know, I think I did a lot of good things this week and God should be happy that I am his child. Or maybe it's the other way around. You said, I have failed. I have not kept God's law and therefore he has not accepted me. But we are not accepted based on what we do or what we do not do. We're, we're accepted based on what Jesus has done. And Jesus has come and he has fulfilled all righteousness. He's done everything that you need to do. So don't fall into legalism. Don't fall into this trap of saying, God accepts me based on what I do. We've talked about legalism a lot, especially when we went through Galatians. But it's something that just continues to creep up in our lives, isn't it? That, that we want to make ourselves pure before God, when in reality Jesus is pure and Jesus gives us his purity. Or maybe you're here and you're seeking acceptance from God. You're seeking your salvation by doing righteous deeds. Know that Jesus has come so that you don't have to do that. Not that we wouldn't walk in holiness when he saves us, but that is not how we're saved. He's, he comes to fulfill all righteousness so that by faith he might make us holy and righteous before him. Of course, now we've got another question. If Jesus comes and, and he gives us his righteousness, he fulfills all righteousness for us, we still have to face the reality that we have sinned, that we have failed, that we have not kept his law. 
Jesus may not have needed to repent, but I do. <laughs> and so do you. Because we have all failed. We have all fallen. We have all broken God's law. And so while God desires to forgive us, there also needs to be this payment for sin. And we know that, that the payment is made in blood through death because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So here in Jesus' baptism, Jesus not only identifies with us as, as a human being, and he not only fulfills all righteousness by doing everything that the law requires, everything that God requires, but then he foreshadows how he is going to deal with our sin. Why was he baptized? The third reason, to foreshadow his death and resurrection. To foreshadow his death and resurrection. John's baptism was for repentance. Uh, the emphasis was on cleansing. The emphasis was on this submersion in the waters of the Jordan and, and, being, and, and coming out as a symbol of I am turning from my sin and I am turning to God. I'm turning away from my other way of life, and I am turning to walk in the way that God has called me. There are elements of of John's baptism in Christian baptism, but they they are not they are not parallel. It's not the same thing. We are baptized as an identification with Christ that that as He was buried in death and raised to new life, that so we too have been buried with Him and raised to new life. But Jesus takes this symbol. And as he knows he's going to transform it later on, and he models for the crowd that's watching in a way that only he and the Father and the Spirit know what is going to happen. He inaugurates his ministry by by emphasizing what, what his ministry is going to be leading towards, what the focus of his public ministry is going to be. He foreshadows the ultimate purpose in the Jordan. He images for the crowd what he's going to do, that he's come to die, that he will be buried in death. He shows that he's not only going to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, but then he is going to take the death penalty that we deserve for us and be raised so that we might find true life in him. He models what he's going to talk about a lot in his ministry. He often will say, I have a baptism to undergo. People may have said, well, Jesus, you were already baptized. So, no, this is a different baptism. This is a baptism in blood. This is where I will die on your behalf. <coughs> I just think we pause and, and think about the beauty of, of what our God has done in Jesus' baptism. That not only he has come and he identifies with us, but he, he fulfills all righteousness. He does everything that we were required to do. He fulfills the law for you. And not only that, but he comes and he models how he's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. And it's by taking God's wrath upon himself, by dying and rising again to give us new life. He fulfills the mission of his father some three years later by giving up his life as a sacrifice on behalf of those who would find forgiveness of sins by faith. Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us to be made right with God. He's done everything that is necessary. And if we have faith in him, he will, he will give us his righteousness. He will impute it to us. He will give it to us and make us right before God. And he will take the penalty for our sin upon himself so that we can stand before him pure and holy. And it's in light of this truth that, that we live that it's something that we know, but it's something that transforms us. And as we behold what Jesus has done, we are transformed completely and we become more like him. Let me mention one final reason why Jesus was baptized. 
And it's to commence his earthly ministry. To commence, to begin his earthly ministry. Uh, Look at the text here. Verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Uh, pause for a moment here and think on, on this model, if you will, before we continue to apply it to our understanding of who Christ is. But think about what's going on here. That, that Jesus is, is being baptized in accordance to the law. Jesus is, is doing what the Father has told him to do. He's, he's obeying completely. He is pure before the Father. And what's the second thing that it says? As he had been baptized, and what's the second one? And was praying. Jesus is here praying. He lived a life of prayer, and yet this is, is focused in on. So he's praying in, in full submission to the Father, in full dependence upon him. So these two things come together. Jesus humbly obeying God in every way. And then his full dependence upon God in prayer. And in that moment, as he is pure and holy and walking in God's ways, and as he is fully dependent upon God, the heavens open up, and the Spirit comes down in power upon him, and the Father says, I am so pleased with you, my son. This is how we walk, I think. I think that this is, this is the application that has been seeping in to, to me to say, if, if I am walking in purity before God, walking in the power of the Spirit to do what God has called me, obeying his word, as a son of God, not to gain my righteousness, but because of what Jesus has done. And if I am fully dependent upon him in prayer, seeking his power, then it's as if the heavens would open up and God would would send his spirit in power and that he would smile and say, I love what you are doing. And then we would move forward in the ministry that God has called us to do. I think that this is, as I think about our church, as I think about that we would be people who walk in God's ways, that we would do what he has called us to do. But then we would be dependent on prayer, on him in prayer, saying, apart from you, we can do nothing. And if we, if those two things would, would come together, it's as if the heavens would open up and God would smile and say, I, here comes the Holy Spirit. I'm going to bless you with, with power for the ministry that you have ahead of you. But, but if we're not walking in holiness, but yet we say that we pray a lot, or, or we're praying but there's sin in our lives, then I don't think that, that, that the heavens open up in that blessing sort of way. But when they come together, there is power. There's a beautiful thing that God could do, not just simply in our, in our own personal lives, but think about what God could do in our church if we are a church that walks in holiness and that just depends fully on God, that he would send his spirit, he would smile upon us. Pray that he would do that in our lives and in our church. But think about that moment. When, when the heavens opened up, I have no idea what that looked like. I, I can't even fathom. I don't know if it was... In my mind, I think it would be kind of daunting and imposing and, and somewhat fearful. And Jesus rises up out of the water. And the, and the heavens open up. You know, Isaiah asked God for the heavens to open up. Isaiah 64. This is what Isaiah says in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 64. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens apart and come down, God, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, 
and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your at your presence. Isaiah says, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Come down in power and in judgment and in fire. So this moment, the heavens open up. At this point, I, what's coming out? Is it fire? Is it is it a lightning bolt? I mean, what is going to happen? The heavens have opened up, and if I'm standing in the crowd, I start to take a, two, a few steps back. What is what is going on here? But what does God communicate? As the veil of heaven is open, what comes down? It's it's a dove. <laughs> it, it's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove who comes and rests on Jesus. And and this dove, it marks what Jesus' ministry is about, that it's this ministry of, of peace and, and of grace and of, and of meekness. He has come not to judge. He has come to seek and to save those that are lost. Certainly the, the, spirit, all, the, the, the spirit coming down emphasizes, too, that, that there's this new dimension of empowering that Jesus is being given by the Spirit, and the Spirit was always with him, and yet there's this empowering for the ministry that's ahead of him. But, but just think about the picture as the heavens open up and God communicates, the veil is torn, which we know is, is coming later when the veil is torn between God and man, and, and it's not a lightning bolt, it's not fire, it's, it's a dove that comes. And Jesus says, I, I'm here to bring peace, I'm here to make peace, I'm here to bring forgiveness. And as we see God the Son, he rises up out of the water and the Spirit descends upon him. And then there's this voice that sounds like thunder, I'm sure, that that speaks out. And God says, this is my Son, my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And what a beautiful picture of the Trinity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here together empowering Jesus for this work that they had planned before the foundations of the world. They come together in this moment and said, we knew this was coming and it's here now and we are so thrilled with what is happening in this moment. You might imagine yourself as a young child, maybe you were, you know, you did plays or you played a musical instrument or something and you walk out on the stage and it's as if there's just millions of people in the crowd and, and, Something daunting is coming ahead of you. And as you scan the crowd, you see all the faces, but then you see some familiar ones. You see you see your, your father or your mother or your grandparents that are there, and they're, they're smiling. And you look at that, and you say, you know what? They're going to love me even if I totally fall on my face in this. They, they, they are pleased with me in this moment. And we know Jesus isn't going to fall on his face, and yet in this moment where he begins his ministry, it's as if the Father looks from the crowd and says, we are so pleased with what you're doing. Your, your submission to the will of the Father, your submission to do what, what we have called to do from the foundation of the world, to accomplish the salvation of the world. So Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens are opened up. The Spirit comes down and the Father shows his favor, blesses the ministry that's ahead of Jesus. And it's in many ways how his ministry ends, isn't it? That he goes up on this mountaintop. And what happens? as if the heavens open up and receive him back in. And, and, and the Father communicates in that moment that he is, he is pleased with what, what the Son has done. That Jesus at age 12 said, I have to be about my Father's business. The Father has given me a task to do, and as he ascends into heaven, the Father says, you did what I asked you to do. You accomplished what you were supposed to do. He takes his Son back in. He says that 
that he loves him, that he approves of the work that he's accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. And then there's that angel standing there, right? And what does the angel say? He says, don't be sorrowful. Just as he went, he's going to come again. And, and he's going to rend the heavens. And it's not a dove this time, is it? It's Jesus. And he breaks through the clouds and he deals with our sin, with the sin of this world, fully and finally. And then we get to go up with him. And we're clothed in white robes and we're washed clean. And God sees us as his sons and he calls us his dearly loved children. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Because he came to identify with us. Because he came to... Because he came to fulfill all righteousness. Because he came to live and to die and to live again. That is our only hope. And if and if we would submit to him in this way, if we would walk in his ways, if we would if we would follow him in that same power of of doing what God has called us to do and relying on him fully by his spirit, if he would not rend the heavens and come down in power and do a work that we can't even imagine. I think there's a fifth reason that Jesus was baptized. It's for his glory. Isn't he glorified here? He's lifted up. He's seen as, as, as great. He's seen as the Son of God, blessed by the Father, empowered by the Spirit. He is the second Adam. He is the true Son of God. He is more than we could ever imagine. We worship him as our, as our Savior and as our Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. I'll get a hold of myself and, and close us in prayer. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. O Jesus, lift your name up. We see you in your beauty, in your glory, in your power, in your grace, in your mercy, in your justice, in your truth, in all that you are, God. How could we even fathom anyone greater than who you are and what you have done? Lord, you have done everything that we need. You have come to us in such great power. You have blessed us with such peace and forgiveness. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Help us to, to see that we rely on you and you alone to do what only you can do, Lord. And we ask that you would rend the heavens and come down. We know that you are coming again to judge this world in righteousness. But, Lord, we ask in your mercy, that you would come in in the power of your spirit, continue to, to draw hearts to you, Lord, that in your patience you would draw more souls into your kingdom, Lord, make us a part of that, that we would point people to Jesus and say, you don't have to do anything, he's done it all. You don't have to die because he's done it for you. Or may we live in that light. I pray that as we've taken a moment to behold who you are, that we would become more like you.
Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for approving of what he did. Thank you that you are coming again. I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen.